Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, you are faithful and good and just and kind and lovely. You are all-powerful, all-wise. You are everywhere. We know you are present here because you're everywhere, but we also know that in a special way, as we gather together as the body, that your presence is, is obvious and real and felt. Thank you for your goodness. We ask that you'd help us to yield ourselves to you this morning, to allow you to perform your work in us, that ultimately we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fellowship around the Lord's Supper is a sweet experience. There are many reasons for it. I just want to share four of them, and then we're going to dive into just some, some scripture. The first reason that fellowship around the Lord's table is a sweet experience is, number one, the table inevitably draws our attention to the self-sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. That is the goal of the table, is to point us to Christ. A second reason for the sweetness of fellowship around the table is this. The table averts our attention from ourselves. It causes us to take an upward glance. Thirdly, the table reminds us of our unity with our Savior. We'll talk about this briefly when we are talking about the elements, but there's this the union that is ours. When we recognize that, that Christ's body was torn for us, that, that when we drink of this cup and we proclaim his death, it's because we have a part in it. When we've come to know Christ as our Savior, we're united together with him. And so this, this really reminds us of our union with our Savior, that we are, we're buried with him, that we're raised with him, that we have life because of him. A fourth reason for the sweetness of experience, of fellowship around the table is this. The table, observed properly, results in the purest form of fellowship the purest form of fellowship. The church is instructed to repeat this celebration regularly, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, but it is also not given a prescription to the interval of how frequently to observe the Lord's Supper and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But the church is given instructions concerning the purity of such a celebration. And this is why we're in 1 Corinthians 10. Take a look beginning in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. We want to see the purity of this celebration of the Lord's Supper. It says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, idolatry is anything, anything that we put before God. Idolatry can be financial. Idolatry can be sexual, idolatry can be uh, vocational, idolatry can be laziness, idolatry can be gluttony. You can go right down a whole list, idolatry. I choose this activity that is contrary to the scriptures because I think my way is better than God's. That is idolatry. So he tells us to flee idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? 
the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, we can't get into all the, the minutia here and the, and the truth here. here. The idea is this. You can't celebrate the Lord's Supper in impurity, whether that be theologically or whether that be in our state or our condition of holiness or lack thereof. We cannot, purity and the Lord's table don't go together. Celebration of the Lord's table is in its essence telling us about the purity of God and the purity of God's people. Head back please now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Consequently, the church is given instructions regarding the importance of the church fellowship keeping the church fellowship pure in all of its aspects. This morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we discuss uh, the, this celebration and our participation, it, it, of, of right course brings our attention to church fellowship. And church fellowship, fellowshipping with God's people, is, is designed around the purity that is associated with Christ. So, as we consider that our fellowship together must be pure, what we want to do is, as we read through 1 Corinthians 5, and we're not going to exposit every verse, but we are going to talk, uh, touch on every verse in this chapter, what we want to note is this. What does this passage teach us about the church's fellowship? What does 1 Corinthians 5 teach us about the church's fellowship? Before we read even the first verse, I'll give you the first element that it teaches us. Public, unrepentant sin cannot be ignored. Public, unrepentant sin cannot be ignored. This is what verses 1 through 8 make blatantly clear. Very obvious from this text. Take a look beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So we have a report. There's a report here. Secondly, we get into verse 2, and he starts to talk to them about their arrogance. He says, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he, he starts to, to talk to them about their response to this report. There's a report. The report's this. This guy has had inappropriate sexual relations with his stepmom. This is not normal. That, that's, that's, it's, it's icky just from the very start. There's a report. And the church, they have a response to it. But their response was one of arrogance. Because you're puffed up about this. Shouldn't we be kind and compassionate and patient? Shouldn't we? Isn't that always the call? The answer to that is yes. We should always be kind and compassionate and patient. 
wouldn't it work better to deal with an erring believer to be all sweet all the time and just loving all the time? Wouldn't that woo them back? Wouldn't it? Unless the Bible gives other instructions, right? Maybe the Bible gives other instructions than all love and all sweetness and all acceptance and all tolerance of sin all the time. Maybe the Bible gives different instructions than that. And it, and it does indeed do that. And so to say, I have a better idea. What we'll do is you can, you can always win more with honey, right, than with vinegar. We, we love the flies. So let's put out the honey and bring, bring the flies will come in instead of the vinegar, which, which might do something else, right? I have a better idea. And here's what Paul says to them about their better idea. That's arrogance. That's arrogance to think you know better than God. It may make sense from a human perspective to be sweet all the time and loving all the time and accepting all the time, but this that we're involved in in the church is not a human endeavor. It's not a human endeavor. So what makes sense to our emotional minds isn't always the call of the day. In fact, the Bible gives us instructions, and when the Bible speaks, we, we should say, yes. And we should succumb to that teaching, and we should submit to that teaching, we should believe that teaching. And the, the Corinthians are puffed up rather than mourning. Rather than doing what God told them, they had a better idea. Verse 3, judgment. Paul's judgment. It says this, For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. So Paul's already made an assessment. He heard the report. Um, apparently he must have heard it from uh, a good source, right? Maybe it's been confirmed by one or two witnesses. It's all been, been followed through. He understands that the, the veracity, the truthfulness of the report, and so he renders his judgment. This, this, he's guilty. Something's wrong here. Then he gives us a word on authority in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want you to hold on to that verse. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to this verse. Of utmost importance is verse 4. It's not, it's not the pastor's authority. It's not the authority of the board of elders. It's not even, friends, the authority of the congregational rule. The authority is vested in one, as it always is. His name is Jesus. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the Savior. He has the right to have preeminence in every way, and he does in this endeavor as well. So he tells us the authority is Christ's and not ours. Then verses 5 through 8, we see the action. Verses 5 through 8, he gives us the action. First of all, the first action in verse 6 is no boasting in sin. He says this, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Boasting in sin is not good. Why? Because sin is infectious. Does that mean every time someone sins, we, we cut them off and say, You're dead? How many of us would still be alive? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> That'd be none of us. What we're talking about, public, unrepentant sin. Uh, someone is exposed to the fact that they're in sin and they say, you know, that's okay, I like my sin better than I like God. Now they won't say those words. But if they continue in it, that's what they're saying, right? 
And so he says to, to boast in their sinfulness is not good. It's not helpful because it's infectious. And so there'll be a, a contamination effect. Verse 7 now gives us another action, and that is sinful practices must be purged. It says this in verse 7. Now notice I said sinful practices, not sinful people. Because if sinful people were purged, this would be an empty building. Yay? True? Correct. We're all sinners. So we're not talking about purging the people. We're talking about purging the practice. He says this, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, listen, since you truly are unleavened. You are holy. You are right. You've been made in a condition or a position that has you spotless. You are holy. That's what unleavened has the idea of. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now why do I use the word practice? Now, the, the application, very specific application, may involve a person's being placed outside of a fellowship. But that's, that's not the ultimate goal. It's the practice that is the ultimate goal, right? Because the person isn't the infectious one. It's the, the practice that's the infection. So, so we don't want to say, oh, oh, you're a sinner. Uh, step outside, please. We can't have sinners in here. It's, listen... This is a public and unrepentant sin. This, you must deal with this. So the practice itself must be purged. Very important action and thought is this. It's in verse, uh, verse 8. Ignoring sinfulness defiles our fellowship. Listen carefully. It defiles our fellowship and celebration of Christ. Ignoring sinfulness defiles our fellowship in celebration of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, we can't, we can't ignore sinful practice. We can't ignore public unrepentant sin. This is the, the first concept that this text teaches us about church fellowship. Public unrepentant sin cannot be ignored. There's a second uh, practice or a second concept that comes out concerning Christian fellowship in this text, and that's this. Christian fellowship is impossible apart from fellowship with God. Christian fellowship between us is impossible apart from fellowship with God. Look at what it says in verses 9 through 11. This is what he writes. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. And since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat, not even to eat with such a person. And so we have this, these verses. He tells us not to keep company with a brother who is involved in public unrepentant sin. Why? Why not keep company? Because there's no fellowship there, friends. When, in order to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ... We must first fellowship with God. If there's unrepented sin in my life, I can't fellowship with God, and so I can't fellowship with you. And so the instruction that comes to the church is this. 
when a Christian is involved in open sin and will not repent, fellowship isn't possible. It's not possible. Don't keep company with them. He says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Listen to what he says there. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Listen carefully. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Very important concept there. So now we come back to this text in 1 Corinthians 5, and he tell, talks us about sexually immoral. He says it at the beginning of chapter 5, and then he talks about it again in verse, uh, verse 9, and then again in verse 11. The, the word there is pornos. Pornos, you can hear some words in there that you're very familiar with. It's the, the basis of any sexual sin. It's, it's that which leads towards sexual sin. So, so it can be the looking or the involvement of pornos, sexual immorality. But that's not the only thing involved here. He talks about all kinds of sin, manner of sinfulness, including drunkenness and extortion, uh, being a reviler, someone who uses their mouth to, to undermine others, idolatry, being covetous. So it's not just one particular sin. Remember that these instructions do not relate to our company with unbelievers. He's not saying, listen, if these people sin, don't hang out with them. Why, why, does, he, why does he put that little asterisk in here? Listen, an unbeliever, what are they going to do? Do they have the Spirit of God in them? They don't. So, so are we going to condemn them because they don't have the Spirit of God in them and, and do what comes naturally? No. He's not saying, listen, if, if there's a sinner out there, don't, don't ever go out, don't hang out with them, don't have coffee with them, don't go to dinner with them. He's not saying that at all. Some people have really abused the, uh, the, 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 the concept of separation and say, hey, look, those are wicky, wicky bad people out there. Leave them alone. Well, let me ask you this question. If one of our main mandates is to bring the gospel to the world, can we really avoid people? I don't think you can bring the gospel without seeing people. Well, I have, a, I have this ministry, and I, and I can do everything by sending people emails or you know, whatever the case. I don't know. I don't think that email is, is the Great Commission, though it you know, can be used toward the Great Commission. Don't misunderstand me. Um, we have, to, we have to be around people. So he's not saying don't hang out with anyone that's a sinner. What he says is those that are called a brother, a so-called brother, if they are involved in unrepentant sin, don't have fellowship with them. Let me just give you a little hint. You can't. You can hang out with them. You can be in their company. But you can't have fellowship. And so he, what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Spirit is, because you can't have fellowship with them, don't have fellowship with them. So don't go hanging out and saying, hey, your unrepentant sin is fine. I don't mind it. Let's have dinner. Or yeah, a possible application is, hey, your unrepentant sin is fine. Let's have the Lord's Supper together as a church, regardless of the fact that you have no fellowship with God. So he's really, he's, he's really tightening the reins here, not because uh, of judgmentalism. The, the reality is, what he's saying is, there's no fellowship there. Why try to have fellowship where there is no possible fellowship? What's better? The better thing is to call them to fellowship with God so that we can then have real fellowship together again.
Now, this is not the only passage that gives us this indication. I want to turn to three passages, and I want to do so quickly because we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, so we, don't, we can't spend all of our time in the Word uh, with this portion of the Word. So let's, let's turn quickly to three passages. I'm going to call all three of them out at once, and you can turn to all three of them. Ready? Romans chapter 16, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and 1 John chapter 1. So turn to all three of those passages, please. I will read them in that order, first, uh, first Romans 16, then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and finally 1 John chapter 1. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. What is he telling them to do? Note that person and don't have Christian fellowship with them. This is, this is the same thing he's saying. The difference is he's got a different topic. What is, what's the offense? Division and false doctrine, right? Now take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now this is interesting, and I'll try, to be, I'll try to be as kindly stating this as possible. We live in a society that caters to some, not all, that will not work. We live in a society that questions whether we should bring people from other countries into our country to give them... Um, Provision, while yet yesterday, as we walked through the streets of Boston, we encountered person after person after person after person that have no home. And yet we want to bring people from other places. And, and believe me, I feel for them. But we can't care for our own. What's wrong with this picture? And we walk by them, and they sleep in the cold, on the cement, with the scraps that they've gathered together over the years. And they've got nothing, except the guy that had the iPhone plugged into the wall. I have got no idea what that's about. Well, things are a mess, right? Oh, am, I, am I correct? Things are a mess. We want to care for people. We hate to see people suffering and hurting. And yet, friends, there are people that could work, should work, should have a place, and do not. And sometimes in this society, they are rewarded while those people that we went by yesterday are not. Who gets to choose who gets the right things and who doesn't? Who gets to live in free housing and who doesn't? Who gets to eat today and who doesn't? Who gets to make these choices? I've got no idea. What we know is there's a problem, right? There's a problem. And society tends to cater to some that should work, could work, and don't. Look at what Second Thessalonians talks about it makes it so clear that we should not cater and reward laziness. Inability? Yes. Struggle? Yes. Laziness and unwillingness? No. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anything stronger than that? That's a very strong start to this passage. And by the authority of Christ, this is what we tell you. 
that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority or the right to eat your food, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, what does it say? Neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So now he's saying, we're here, these people, that they're, they're, they're taking your food while doing nothing. Now, verse 12, Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness. So stop doing this. Stop it. Stop taking other people's bread and not working. This is what he says, right? We, we tell them to stop doing this and eat their own bread. Get, fend for yourself. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, in this writing, in this regard, in what regard? That if anyone will not work neither shall he eat. That is definitely in the context. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Why do you want him to be ashamed? Because you just want him to feel really low. Oh, let's make them feel really low. Is that the point? No. Why do you want someone to feel ashamed? Turn. Turn. You can't be a lazy unwilling to work person and be right with God. It doesn't work. So turn from your laziness. Turn toward the Savior and he'll give you a work ethic. He will. There's no doubt about it. When the Spirit controls you, you will work. You will labor. Verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Very important statement. We'll come back and reference that one more time. One more passage, please, about this. 1 John chapter 1. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the church's fellowship. And the fellowship of the church is pure. The, the church cannot ignore public, unrepentant sin. And the church fellowship, Christian fellowship, is impossible outside of fellowship with God. And so we're looking at these concepts. And, and 1 John chapter 1 makes it so abundantly clear that our fellowship with one another is only real fellowship if our fellowship with God is right. If we're fellowshipping with God, we can then fellowship with one another. But you can't have fellowship with one another. We cannot, unless we're first fellowshipping with God. Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Okay, so he's talking to them about fellowship. Fellowship with one another, fellowship with the Father, and with Jesus. And the result of this kind of fellowship is an overflowing joy. So a call to fellowship with God is a call to an overflowing joy. So when I call you to fellowship with God, and I call myself to that fellowship with God, what I'm really calling myself to is an abundance an overflowing of joy. That's what happens in our fellowship with the Lord. Then he starts to talk in verses 5 through 10 about the process whereby that fellowship takes place. He says in verse 5, this is the message 
which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, guess what? We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, listen, we have fellowship with who? One another. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we're in right fellowship with God, so we're in right fellowship with one another. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, we call him a liar, and his word is not in us. So is the point made fellowship with one another is impossible unless we're right with God? It's very clear, correct? So we can move on. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've seen that public, unrepentant sin cannot be ignored. That Christian fellowship is impossible apart from fellowship with God. And now thirdly, the church is responsible to judge its own members. The church is responsible to judge its own members. Take a look at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, now when I say judge, we're not going to be like, mm, I, think, I think I can find something wrong with you. That's the stereotypical judging kind of church, like, you know, that, that a church can become. Like, ooh, I don't think that you had the right motivation when you did this. Like, we're looking for, it's not that kind of judgment. We're not talking about that. We're talking again about public unrepentant sin, judging that, not being fruit inspectors and sin inspectors. We're not talking about that whatsoever, so do not misunderstand this concept. Verse 12, for what I have uh, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Meaning outside the church, right? What do I have to do with, with, with judging the world? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. That, that's his responsibility. Therefore, put from among yourselves the evil person. There's, there's the text. The church is responsible to judge its own members. Let me clarify this second phrase or clause of verse 12. By using the ESV, it makes it clear. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In other words, he's saying you should judge the ones that are in the church. Again, not fruit inspection. We're talking about public, unrepentant sin. He's telling us to do this. All right, well, how does this all take place? Take a look, please, with me at, a, at one more text. Matthew chapter 18. As you're turning, I want to ask you this question to just ponder. Does the church have any weight in its judgment? It's like he says in verse 12, aren't you to judge inside? And I ask you this question. Where's the weight of that judgment? Like, if, if the church judges you, right, does that matter? I think it's a good question because we live in a, in a different kind of society in the 21st century and it's kind of like, well, who really cares? Let's go to another church. They won't judge me there. So the question is, is there any weight to this judgment or is it just like, all just falderall and superfluous. I think Matthew 18 has something to say about this. Listen to what he says. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more. By the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. What is he saying here? He's saying that when you follow the proper pathway to establish truth about an unrepentant public sinfulness, when the church has rightly followed the protocol and there's clear agreement and the church has done what it's supposed to and there's still a lack of repentance, God says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Is there a weight to this? Well, I'll tell you this. If you don't agree with this portion of it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 has something to say to you. Take a look back there, please. And verse 4, I told you we're going to come back, circle back to this. Remember he says, if two or three are gathered in my name, he's not talking about prayer meeting here, he's talking about dealing with church discipline issues. I am there in the midst. I am there in the midst. You know what he's saying? I am saying I agree. Who is this I? The Lord of the church. The high priest of the believer. The advocate of the believer. The one who's supposed to have preeminence in every area over the believer. The one who is the head of that believer. He says, I'm with you. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the what? With the power. The power of the Lord Jesus he says, deliver such a one to Satan, listen, for the destruction of the flesh. This is for his bodily harm, meaning uh, feeling the, the, the hurt of, of separation, being left to his own devices. Because remember, I am with you in the midst. You've stepped outside of the protective care of the one who would gather you under his wings, the one who would, would lead you beside the still waters, the one who would lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, and, and you would fear no evil. This one! You've said, I don't want you. That's what they say. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why do we do this? Because we hate them? Because we disdain them? Because we think little of them? Because we look down on them? No, 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 no. Not. That's not the way it goes, friends. What's the rest of verse 5 say? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We do this for the betterment of our brother. We do this for their restoration, for their reconciliation, for their rightness, because we love them. It, it hurts our hearts to see them walking away from truth, walking away from their sovereign, their savior, their, the one that loves them and gave himself for them. This is why, friends, there's so much church discipline that is uttered authoritarian and, and uncaring and, and mightier than thou and holier than thou. And that, friends, is not biblical. That's not what we talk about. The Bible has a totally different picture on this. Totally different. What is the church to do with one who publicly, unrepentantly continues in sin? The administration of church discipline is not, in our opinion as a church, an excommunication. It is a limiting of the privileges of the unrepentant from celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
and the privileges of unfettered fellowship with the church, the unrepentant is best off to remain under the teaching of God's word, though most often they will not choose to do so. If you want to know the biblical pattern for the process of church discipline, we did read it already in Matthew chapter 18. It's very clearly spelled out. If you want to know the spirit with which church discipline must be administered, you can see Galatians 6, 1, that talks about a spirit of gentleness. 2 Thessalonians 3, 15, that says, Do not count them, him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And in this very text that we're in, in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, that we should mourn. What are the goals of church discipline? Not in order, not in any particular order. I'm just going to list four of them. We're not turning to any more texts, just... Bring it to your attention. The first goal of church discipline is obedience to God's instruction. The second goal of church discipline is to trust in God's ways. I'll tell you, friends, if you've ever been in one of these situations, it doesn't feel like this is a really productive thing. If someone sins and you're going you're gonna to make them feel shame, that usually makes them go in the other direction, right? This is how we rationalize it. But when we trust in God... We do what he says. And you know what happens? Church discipline properly administered does result in some other actions than what our, our sense leads us to think. Trust in God's ways. Thirdly, restoration of the unrepentant believer, which would then make them a repentant believer, right? And fourthly, the purity of the church in its worship and celebration. This is the goal, friends. Why talk about this when talking about the Lord's Supper? Well, this is a feast of purity, isn't it? It's a feast of purity. And this is our attention now. This is where we're turning our attention. Every element of our, our fellowship comes under this concept of, of the purity that only results from our pure fellowship with God. And when we step outside of that pure fellowship with God, this all breaks down. Our, our fellowship around the table or our fellowship around this Lord's table. It breaks down. And we can't have that. We will not have that. It is the responsibility of each part of this church to uphold the biblical truth, the biblical standard, and the, the true establishment of what this means that we celebrate in purity, which is what we turn our attention to now. Take a look, please, at 1 Corinthians 11 as we turn our attention to the Lord's table.